0: Praise Him, praise, Him, praise Him in the morning, praise Him in the noon. Praise Him, praise, Him, praise, Him, praise Him till the sun goes down. Hey, welcome to More Christ. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jens Zimmerman. Jens is a Christian philosopher and a theologian who specializes in hermeneutics and the philosophical and theological roots of humanism. He's currently the J.I. Packer Chair of Theology at Regent College in Vancouver in Canada. And um, then just to to begin, Jens, can you tell us, please, a little bit about your background and some of the key events in your life that have helped form you and um, your love for Christ and his church then?
1: Sure. Um, Thanks, Mark. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Um, Yeah, so I grew up in Germany. Um, I became a Christian during a rotary exchange program When I was 17, uh, seems so long ago, uh, I came to Canada for a year, stayed with different families. I came from a traditional German background. You know, uh, as most people know in Europe or Germany, you're baptized into a church of birth, uh, into a religion, but you have no clue uh, about it. Sort of normal thing. Just the same with me. There was no Christian upbringing um, until then. I I came to Canada um, into a rural place. Uh, stayed with uh, Pentecostals, Mennonites, um, you know, evangelicals and so got the full force of that sort of personal uh, faith experience. I still remember uh, sitting at a table with this Mennonite family and they prayed and when they prayed I literally I looked up I thought who the heck are they praying to who is in the room because it sounded so personal uh, as if they were addressing somebody who's actually alive and standing there. Um, Anyway, long story short, I um, I converted uh, to Christianity in that year, and I had to go back to Germany Did my army service um, studied music there for a couple of years, I wanted to become a famous clarinetist which never worked out. Um, Probably a good thing my dad thought was a good thing he thought a musician is only to be found on the street somewhere with a hat in front of him. Uh, So he was a doctor, uh, a whole family of doctors, uh, in fact, and. um, Yeah, and so then I um, eventually broke with my music studies and went to UBC here in Vancouver, Canada to study English and took off from there. Um, Found a church there, found a church home, it was greatly formative. Um, I might just say um, my whole sense of Christianity is really shaped by this experience of having become a Christian, uh, having experienced, uh, encountered the reality of Christ as a living Uh, being really, um, and then going back to Germany without any church support, uh, being in the army, um, also being incredibly naive, you know, trying to seek out other Christians or a church, even in the the town where the barracks were, never kind of did that, felt very alone, Um, kind of uh, thought, oh, maybe this was an interesting experience uh, that I had in Canada, but specific to Canada, and then it was during this time, a year, uh, two, three years really, until I returned to Canada for further studies, that uh, God kind of um, pulled me back to him. And there's a very tangible way I just it's really hard to, to, to describe uh, for somebody like me who's not Pentecostal, not given to um, what boniface said, sort of mysterious experiences. Um, but there was a tangible sense of a reality of a person who would say, no, I am real this really did happen, and uh, I am here with you. So I have this sense of, uh, a deep sense of the reality of God in that, with all the intellectual stuff that that I've been doing, um, that's carried me through, Um, and that is reflected in the church community. So church is very important for me, but I've also learned that over time.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Anyway, that's sort of the background for the
0: for the christian side i think mm, wonderful thank you so much for sharing and then um what first prompted your interest in some of those academic concerns philosophy and some of the central concerns human harmonics and different things that we see in your work
1: yeah it's a great question too um i, I when i when you asked me that question i thought of a line from uh, jane austen's pride and prejudice where, where lizzie talks to her sister And she asked him, how did you fall in love with Mr. Darcy? And she says, well, it came on so gradually, I hardly knew. Uh, That's sort of the same thing. I can't really point uh, to an exact moment. Um, I had some very good teachers at at UBC. I remember doing a master's program uh, in in, uh, New Historicism. um, I discovered Gadamer for some reason. Um, and the, which became a hugely important influence uh, in my philosophy and my outlook. Uh, we could talk about that more later. Um, so I can't really point you to a, a point in time, but it was it was this expat um, experience where I found texts in, in the tradition, uh, like in the hermeneutic tradition, um, and also in the Christian tradition with Bonhoeffer, who were uh, tied to really important times in intellectual history, like Gadamer's defense of the humanities. In the 60s and bonhoeffer's you know fight against uh, nazism um and w- which was kind of a crucible in some ways for his theology that we're all in german so i was here this english you know learning how to speak and write in english but i had these german sources that kind of gave you an edge uh because you could of course always say well that's not what the german really says you know and and, and so on um but it was interesting to be rediscover your own culture sort of from a distance um, and have it intellectually applicable so that was certainly was a driver in, in bringing me to these sources. So Gadamer, Heidegger, um, Paul Ricoeur, which I could read in French, um, was also sort of European. Um, so I've always sort of maintained a bit of a European outlook within the North American um, you know, intellectual
0: sphere. Mm, excellent. Thank you. And um, I appreciate you introducing some of us to some of those figures. I've been most impressed by Gallimer in particular from your work. So um, you mentioned a few names there. Are there any other persons who've been especially inspirational or influential in your life that you'd like to tell us about?
1: Yeah, so it really is interesting um, that you ask it that way because it it strikes me uh, to what an extent my influences are people I've never met and our texts. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are others. I mean, if I had to name uh, one in the Christian church context, it's definitely when I uh, found my first home church here as a student. Uh, It was a Presbyterian church. Uh, There were a couple of elders uh, in that that church who were deeply impressive, Um, you know, uh, who had life experiences, um, having been one of them having been a pilot in the war um, uh, for England, by the way. bombing German cities. So that was interesting, because when my father came over once and met this guy, you know, it was an interesting moment when the first question was, did you fly and bomb Dresden or not? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But these men were hugely impressive in their spirituality and in their uh, groundedness, um, in their prayer life, um, the way they looked at the church, the way they ran the church, um, and that really was all about Christ um, and the human being. And everything else, dogma and so on, was hugely important for them, but I was secondary. Uh, So um, anyway, so that was one influence. The others, in terms of the text and intellectual figures, uh, Gadamer was certainly one of the most important whom I actually did meet. Um, In fact, uh, I was one of the last ones that interviewed him before he died um, on the topic of religion and culture and Christianity, which was hugely interesting. It was also interesting to me that a 102-year-old was actually still thinking Um, And and trying to break new ground and and had been for a number of years at this point where he kept pushing other philosophers on the importance of religion, so that certainly um, influenced some of my thinking. Um, And then um, the other really big figure i've already mentioned Bonhoeffer, we can talk more about that um, when we talk about that book. Um, But also Catholic tradition like, uh, for instance, when uh, Ratzinger became Pope. You know, again, a German Pope. Um, I bought all of his writings I read, I think I read almost if that's possible, uh, all of his stuff. Um, and I was deeply impressed. Um, I know there was a lot of controversy about him. But I was very impressed with this analysis of, you know, secular secularity secularism. Uh, his um, dialogue with Habermas uh, was I, I handed that out to all the students um, to read it, and so on. So that was one influence. Um, and then certainly another one that was a huge influence on me was uh, Emmanuel Levinas. Um, I think we've all had this, you've probably had this too, where somehow there's this one text of person that you come across and you read the books and they just, just say, yes, I've always thought something like this, could never articulate it, and it takes you into this whole direction. It seems to be like your guru for, for a while, right? And that was for me with Levinas, with this, this ethics, philosophy uh, as first ethics, or so first ethics as philosophy. Uh, the, the regard for the human being, the irreducibility um, of the human being, our our the importance of seeing the human person as unique each time, um, not being uh, subsumed to any kind of t- totality. It's just so radical with that. But also, it's phenomenological descriptions of life, of labor, of how we try to make a home for ourselves in a sort of you know uh, in that kind of philosophical tradition. Um, were hugely influential. I think I still go back to that. And of course, he was one of those people that talked about humanism, uh, right? the humanism of the other. And uh, so that was one of those things that got me onto the topic of humanism. And then maybe I can just spin this. You Just tell me when I should stop talking. But um, having looked at some of the the questions that you um, are posing, and then, of course, here, if you have, you have this Jewish philosopher who says he's just doing phenomenology, phenomenology, which is a bit disingenuous, because, of course, it's deeply informed by um, by Judaism and a deep faith. Um, so you have this philosopher Jewish philosopher talks about what it means to be human and then another person that talks about uh, uh, what it means to be human and says that his whole philosophy, in some sense, is. An analysis of the human being in order to get at the question of being as such, which was, of course, Heidegger. So you have Heidegger. Let's just be polemical here. There's he- Heidegger, the Nazi and Emmanuel Levinas, the Jew, who has had this profound experience, also very bad experience, obviously, uh, in German uh, during the German uh, you know, occupation. And during the, the German Nazi time and so on. Um, you have these two people, and and uh, I mean Levinas. I, I read a lot of the the biographical history, and uh, Levinas's utter and total allergy to Heidegger um, on the on the human level, but also his fascination with Heidegger on the intellectual level. Right? He said uh, it's sort of like this guy's written such an important book, Being in Time, but he is such a human pig, He's such a human catastrophe. Uh, how do you put that together? You know, I mean, you kind of have to have a you know, what I call a Balaam's ass philosophy of truth, like whoever, whoever speaks truth still speaks truth, even if he is, you know, a donkey or uh, an ass or, you know, a Heidegger or a Nazi, because I mean, Heidegger did not relinquish his Nazi, never apologized for his Nazi connections, which is what drove Levinas nuts, uh, really made him angry. Um, and so I wrote a book, I compared those two, like uh, Heidegger and Levinas and what it means to be human. Um, which was then published as Humanism and Religion. Um, that was a big part of the heart of that, that, um, that book. And that's how I think I came in part to this topic of humanism.
0: Mm, brilliant. Thank you for sharing again. And um, next today, I'd love to look at some of your written work. So we mentioned Hermeneutics there. You, you've written this wonderful introduction. Hermeneutics, a very short introduction. I want to ask you first, then, what is hermeneutics for those who don't know? And what first moved you then to write that book? Um,
1: yeah, so I'll start with the second part. What moved me to write the book is just a long, uh, long occupation with the topic, with Gadamer, with philosophical hermeneutics, with the whole tradition. And I thought that it is so important, it's such a fundamental. Um, approach to how we know right I mean Gadamer says it's an ontology of understanding. um, That there are lots of introductions, but I um, having you know taught uh, English literature, uh, having taught some philosophy. um, And being interested in in science, uh, at least in the history of science. um, I thought there's no book out there that says hermeneutics is really important for all of these areas. Um, um, and kind of Gadamer kind of does that right in his book he, he uses in fact law uh, as an example art as an example of how hermeneutics works um, so I thought I thought I, I, I wanted to write this this little book um, and I can't remember anymore whether Oxford approached me or I suggested to them um, to do this intro and it was very very difficult to boil all this stuff down but the interest was basically to show to show people how fundamental um, what Gadamer said about the nature of knowledge or what this whole, you know, and so on what the tradition there says about how we actually know um, is important. I wanted to get that out uh, to people because I felt in my teaching uh, and in my conferencing and so on that often, um, you know, just to take one example, the conflict of science and religion you know, the, the sort of conflict model or the, I always thought that would just go away if they just read truth and method. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, like if, if you actually understood how the, the nature of knowledge works and I threw in a little bit of um, Michael Polanyi's work, who's, who's already talked about this a great deal in the, mm-hmm. the 40s, I, I think, I believe in his Gifford lectures, uh, personal knowledge. If you just realize that that we all that this hermeneutic paradigm really pertains to all human knowing, whether you have the natural sciences or the humanities, then then that kind of levels the playing field or at least allows us to talk about it in in a, in a common language rather than fighting uh one another um not really understanding we're both coming from a very narrow knowledge paradigm um so that's one of the motivations for for um for putting that out um, another one certainly was literature students um you know i taught at an institution for a while where everybody had to take a first year english class and so you had the science majors, the business majors, and the jogs, like the, the PE people or whatever they're called now, <laughs> um, in there. And the, the most common thing I heard is why on earth would I want to have to read poetry? Like that's for sissies. Like who wants poetry or that's for idiots? You know, I mean, we are in the marketplace. We don't need that's just a luxury and so on. So again, I, I wanted to have something in my hand that I can hand to them and say, look, you're not gonna listen to me probably for an hour. But here's a book you should read, um, which is understandable in layman's language that tells you why you should read poetry. So that's that's part of the reasons.
0: Yeah, definitely doing the Lord's work. (laughs) And uh, then with the, the, I think you've touched upon this question a little bit already there with that answer. But uh, why then? Is it an awareness of hermeneutics vital, maybe especially today, even as you say, at that academic level, but even at the more popular level, as we're really saturated with information, especially with the internet age? And there's a, I think in many places a de facto hermeneutics of suspicion. And they, obviously in popular terms, that's often known as things like post-truth or fake news. What do you have Some of those concerns. Yeah, um, that's
1: a great question, which reminds me I didn't answer you at first question uh, f- uh earlier question fully what is hermeneutics um so hermeneutics i mean it's basically generally just means uh, the term just means interpretation to interpret to explain um maybe even to understand uh you know hermenean or or interpretare um, in latin translation of the same thing and the claim of course that Gadamer makes is that everything is hermeneutics. so everything is interpretation and then um, people freak out and say oh that's relativism that means everything is just you know your opinion or my opinion that's not at all of course what he means we can talk more about that um but why that's important is so, so we realize that in all that we do um you know whether we access google something on the computer whether we read a book whether we read the newspaper even in fact whether we talk to somebody else is we're always engaging in this activity of interpretation. And what interpretation basically is in that kind of Gadamerian sense um, means that you, you um, integrate what you hear or what you experience into a meaningful whole. So something takes these parts, these impressions you're reading, and you want to, this speaks to you. And the reason it speaks to you is because we're all geared that way. We all want to interpret this meaning, integrate these details into a meaningful whole. Call, you know, now we like the term story, uh, term, to call it a picture, um, how the world makes sense to us. And so that integrating activity, of course, happens on the basis of certain things. Um, one of them is the eyes or the understanding of the world that you've gained through a certain tradition, like you know, the, the language that you speak, uh, the background, uh, your family, where you've, how you've been educated. Um, and all these kind of things. So, so the importance of tradition and how how it makes you something see. And Gadamer points that you should be aware to some extent. I mean, you can't always, you can't ever be fully self-reflexive. That would be like trying to that'd be like trying to walk while looking at your feet individually and trying to figure out how that works right You fall on your nose. It doesn't work, but that you become aware that you're working out of a tradition that you're working out of what he calls a historically um, affected consciousness. Um, so that your your way of perceiving is not just the truth as it falls from the sky, but it's deeply shaped by by a tradition by your by your upbringing by your language um, and so on. And so that also means um, that if you understand something, you have to spend a fair amount of time on a kind of intelligent integration. And this takes me to the to the second part of your question there. Today, what we have is an absolute information overload. So if our basic acquisition of knowledge depends on intelligent integration of these details of this mass of information, into a meaningful whole, I think that's hugely important. So how do you train people uh, to do that? Um, And this takes us actually a little bit into my, the stuff I'm interested in now is technology uh, and the whole impact of technology on our, on how we understand. Um, I mean, Heidegger wrote about this uh, decades and decades ago, but so if, because if you, we're no longer training ourselves in, in the kind of hermeneutic consciousness um, that Gadamer talks about. So you need some kind of a formation um, that, is, that is holistic, intelligible, um, you know, a framework, let's say, that you have within which you then integrate all this information. But we're no longer doing this. Our, our education often fails to do that because there is no time. We just look everything up. But that's sort of like an input, information input all the time, which just lasts momentarily. Does nothing for integration. It's kind of an information bit, which I then use. Um, maybe just to give you an example is I don't think any of my kids know anymore where anything is around us. Like when they get in the car, they, they, you know, they take uh, Mr. Google, uh, they, they Google the, the, the GPS thing, and it tells them how to drive there. But they have no clue where they are. They have no map. In their heads. Uh, we grew up with maps. Like I knew where east, north, west, south was. I knew where, what the basic terrain was. So if I knew that if I turned the wrong way, I had a sense of, oh, this is not, this is the wrong direction. Like they wouldn't know this. Like the Google, it could take them in circles and they'd still follow it, you know? Um, so it's, it, and if you take that and translate it to our intellectual um, landscape or, or, you know, our way of being, I think we're, we're, we're being untrained to actually have sort of a a map of what's good, of what's bad, um, what makes intellectual sense, of what belongs here or doesn't belong here, of whether somebody tells me something really stupid and out to lunch or not. Um, And and I think in that way, this hermeneutic attitude or consciousness is really important. And as you know, uh, Mark, we used to, uh, so liberal arts education was all about that, was all about acquainting you with the tradition that is kind of normative or um, formative, let's say, and has been formative for for your particular culture, let's say, but even beyond that, for reality as a whole, but certainly in terms of, you know, what counts as ethically right, what counts as legally just, uh, and so on and so forth. You would learn this and acquire this in a general education, um, and now we're just kind of becoming more and more like machines where you just want an occasional feed of information in order to deal with a certain situation. But that is that is absolutely detrimental for an actual wise comportment that can draw on a, on a holistic picture within which you integrate each new information. And so I've, I've, had, um, I've had somebody say to me, I can't remember where this was, but he said, you know, I can't wait until we have the ability to put um, memory chips and so on in our brains, so that I can access all this information, and already there, there is no sense in the statement that information itself is complete gibberish. Like information needs to be integrated into a greater whole. Um, but it was just this image of a chip feeding us information, just faster and more intrinsically entwined in our be- you know, in our brain uh, than if I had to Google it. But it's the same problem of integration. It just, you know, you, ha- you have basically. Um, in, in, the, in the classical sense of the word, you have an idiot who gets information and, and what do you do with it, you know? Now, that's the problem. I think that's why hermeneutics is deeply relevant, at least in that
0: sense. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Jens. And um, I think another one, thing that comes, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but another element that comes across in your work in this um, justified skepticism to at least some forms of transhumanism and so on, even at a simple basic level, the way that the algorithms work on social media and how they ghettoize us into these different silos, and we only see, say, with our little political perspective or whatever it is. So it's almost as if nature abhors that vacuum. So we've ignored uh, hermeneutics all along, but yet here it's coming back and uh, yeah. filtering us into these little. Is it, does that make sense?
1: That yeah, totally makes sense. So as I, as you as you said, like and it, um. Hermeneutics is always going on like we are hermeneutical beings we're interpretive beings that's just you know the the whole myth that there is a given Um, and i'm not saying that there isn't an objective world, obviously, but um, this this whole. uh, We've been trained for about 300 years through the scientific revolution and and people like Descartes and Galileo uh, of thinking ourselves, you know. I think of ourselves like this, um, the, my favorite figure, and I don't know if this is probably dated already, is the um, the Terminator movies, where Arnold Schwarzenegger plays the Terminator, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember there's this one where he comes and he walks naked into a bar and he needs clothing, and he walks in, and you can see it through his eyes, so it's a machine's eyes that measures everything, and looks for the right size of clothing. Um, and so this this, this, this this we've been trained this way of thinking that what we see, what we feel, with our senses what you perceive with the eye um and the immediate impressions of personal vibes and things like that they're all they're all just surface and they're all appearances underneath what really goes on is measurable and quantifiable and that's the real truth and that's how we have been you know how, how we have been geared and so i think the whole thing what you're mentioning uh, saying here that just this transhumanist um Fiction is that we really are already like algorithms. We already are already these kind of um, basic functionalist things. Uh, no longer human beings. No longer a mystery. No longer a relational um, mystery of, of an individual person or who that's unique and that I need to get to know. That needs to reveal itself. No, we're we're really these tinkering toys now, like we're the things algorithmically driven. Genes are just codes. Um, that want to replicate themselves through our through our bodies and what we do. I mean this is such a reductive view of the human being which is though, um, I'm afraid becoming the, the dominant one. And so we, we're not aware of um, the fact how algorithms in these social media particularly actually control us, how they how they drive us you know had um, we had, uh, we had uh, one of the, these in, so here's another, not maybe a person, but certainly a moment that shaped me the, uh, a few years ago. We had, uh, maybe a year ago, we had uh, Jaron Lanier talk to us in a research group. Um, he's this uh, inventor of virtual reality computer scientist who works for Microsoft in development. He uh, was very critical of technology in some ways. And um, he told us stuff about the, um, how this algorithmic, um, how this actually works and how these uh, platform uh, companies work. Um, how you know google facebook and so on how they make their money and why um, much of his critique by the way is summarized in this uh netflix thing the social dilemma i think it was called i don't know if people if you watched it it's 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 well worth watching it's it's some people at google and so on they woke up with a conscience one day and said wait a minute like what are we doing here um but the fact is that's deliberate psychological nudging uh, that's being employed at a very crude and primitive level, but it works because it appeals to our most base instincts, uh, which is fear and hate. And, um, and these algorithms are basically um, configured to feed you what you fear most and what you hate most, because they figure that gives the most clicks. And so that's why, and I've seen it in, you know, in my own uh, children, at least in one of them, uh, the way that these feeds are configured, they just, they just really rile you up. And, uh, you know, so if you're interested in a certain topic, you will get fed more and more on that topic and will become more and more probably apocalyptical and, and you know, intense and like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're not aware of that, um, that's terrible. And if and the reason it's being done, though, is because people at Google and so on, I mean, they were used as primitive psychology because they really think that's all we are, we're manipulable, you know, things. Um, They can be manipulated for their uh,
0: purpose. Mm, bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. And um, you cover a wonderful range of the, going through the history of hermeneutics and so forth. in the book ends. Uh, mm-hmm. If you want to speak about that, or else, um, I wanted to also ask you about what are some of the we've touched upon a few, I suppose. But what are some of the key emphases then, in more philosophical hermeneutics then? Do you think are most important, and that you really hope to convey with this little book?
1: Yeah. Um... Yeah, the history of hermeneutics was interesting to me because um, I wanted to connect also, uh, you know, religions. I mean, it's a short book, so it's very difficult to do all this, <laughs> but um, I wanted to also um, put something in there about um, Christianity and Islam. Uh, so I, I really only talked about the monotheistic um, religions, but how interpretation uh, is crucial for them as well. Um, so, really, to go back to what I said earlier, the, the foundational uh, hermeneutic, nature, hermeneutic nature of human knowing across all of our activities, you know, whether we do science, um, whether we're religiously engaged, um, you know, um, there's a sense in some Christian circles, for instance, and I think, also in Muslim circles that revelation, for instance, just to talk about the religious side, is something that um, Falls ready made from the sky sort of an immediate you know interface with with the voice of god um and of course it's not i mean uh, you know there's a mediation going on through text through tradition um in fact through your metaphysics um which is what still um in my circles protestant um uh, biblical studies people often don't want to see they still they still it's still a sense of sola scriptura that says here's here's the monolith of the text, yes, yes, I know I have some interpretive baggage and so on and so forth, but I'll drop all of that and I'm face to face with the text I just have to be aware of my baggage and then I let the text speak to me. Um, That's still very much around and I think that's in the end reductive um, and dangerous because it very quickly becomes uh, unphilosophical uh, and narrow. Um, So that's what was and the other. um, the other part I wanted to show is that while it is true, there's this story within the hermeneutic community may I don't know, can use that term within the research uh, community of hermeneutics. Um, which was told by Gadamer and others, um, in some ways they draw on Christianity and particular of on Christianity for um, Gadamer does for his work. But there's a sense in which they say well, but people only became aware of um the importance you know they only became aware of the ontology of understanding of of how understanding works uh, reflect on that with schleiermacher like with a certain as a certain point in time when this kind of stuff became really self-reflective you know so and i think that's true to an extent so in terms of language certainly schleiermacher is uh, a key um caesura like a, a breaking point a watershed where somebody sits down and says, well, we talk about understanding stuff. Like, what does it actually mean in philosophical terms to understand? You know. So he is said to be the father of the general sort of hermeneutics, which then gives rise to the works of God and beyond. But so what I wanted to show, um, I've done some of the book. I've done um, a lot more in my first book, a uh, theological hermeneutics, is that the Christian tradition uh, itself also reflected deeply on understanding And and you can see it if you're a Christian, because, you know, uh, at least I know from reading, you know, a lot of um, uh, Puritan literature, uh, pietistic literature at at a certain form of time in my life as an early Christian, uh, how there's always this sense of I can't understand without the Holy Spirit, unless the Holy Spirit takes a veil from my understanding. And of course, then they then they talk about. So what's wrong with my understanding? How is my understanding? What is it affected by? It's affected, you know, the dramatic effects of sin. Uh, of my passions of all things, so they talked a great deal in fact about um if you want to call it like the ontology of understanding and what how we engage text and so on um it wasn't just as if as others have claimed um that they simply talked about hermeneutic rules and how to read the bible but that was the extent of it like that was just wasn't true so you know with that history i tried to talk a little bit show a little bit in the book how How interpretation works um, for the Christian tradition, of course, then for everything else like law science um, and especially the humanities, and we can talk a little bit more about that if you want. Um, But let me know like the you know what it what hermeneutics means for the humanities.
0: Mm, brilliant, yes. Actually, I would lo- I'd love to ask you a bit about that now. So um, with a bit of background, even at a popular level, again, so maybe the people can understand it, I think uh, your work, like some ways, uh, you can again, correct me if I'm wrong, but say even Joseph paper, people who focus on uh, leisure, what they call leisure, and Huizinga, uh, uh, people like that who focus on play, there's that element that goes beyond strictly um, utilitarian kind of like you're saying that conception that we've had for the last couple of hundred years, and um, mm-hmm. with the humanities and its value, would you like to um, head on that and this relationship between the harmonies and the humanities and why it's important? Then,
1: yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. I mean, just as you know, as I intimated earlier, um, because of teaching this English class, you know, where people said, "Why do I read poetry?" Um, Gadamer's work became um very important to me because it is in effect, in effect the defense of the humanities right i mean he wrote the book um stating clearly in the intro um, that he coming from a household i mean his, his father was a, a natural science prof um didn't think much of of the humanities and so Gadamer, after 60 when he was around 60 after decades of teaching arts classes and stuff like that and philosophy wrote this as a defense of the humanities. so um so you have to do two two things i mean and i'm just going to summarize this in in my own way you basically want to show that what you do when you read when you read a philosophical text when you read poetry um when you construct art or interpret art um you're actually engaged in fundamental of fundamentally objective knowledge just as objective just as true a scientific knowledge um and so in order to realize this you have to of course Understand how knowledge actually works, and that's what Gadamer does in the book. Um, and so he dismantles this idea uh, that science provides for us objective knowledge, like the hard stuff, you know, that that um, is true whether you believe it or not. And and the humanities give you all that kind of soft opinion stuff, which is maybe good for some moral edification, but really, if you want truth, you go to the you go to the natural scientists, you know. Um, So you need to, I mean, this is an old dichotomy by now and you'd think it'd be long gone of facts and values, but in fact it's still very much alive. Um, And so um, you just have to I mean it's almost like you have to give your head a shake. um, When you say this, Um, but you just have to, you have to use I think that's for me the value of hermeneutic theory of of Gadamer's work and and, uh, Michael Polanyi's work and Paul Ricoeur's work is that the, the fundam- most fundamental, the bedrock of our experience of the world, uh, the most fundamental knowledge is not actually scientific. It's not actually theoretical, but is the practical involvement in the material world through our you know, intelligent and souled and spirited bodies. Um, and therefore, I mean, I, I can delineate this if you want, but I mean, therefore. Uh, from this experience comes for us, for instance, a sense of the sacred. From this experience comes um, the poetic, you know, um, this kind of metaphorical, condensed metaphorical expression, which you find, in, frankly, um, in a lot of um, what you may call uneducated uh, or, you know, um, uh, really salt of the earth, grounded sort of like a good farmer, you know, who is who is wise and intelligent, will be a poet in some sense, and. Um, And so I always tell my students, like, you just have to take this, turn this right around. We think that knowledge comes through theoretical reflection, when in fact, we already know how to move around in the world. And it's only when that is interrupted, when that breaks down, when something weird happens, that we need to actually reflect and figure out what it is that we're doing. And that's also what um you know that's what philosophy does that's what science does in some ways in the material sense with objects but we we already know and then we and then philosophy and science and these kind of things and so we already you know heidegger talked this we dwell poetically but i think that's true uh we live in in a sort of metaphorical meaning making sense already in our everyday activities uh through our embodied being in the world and so uh the theoretical reflections that we're told to be to yield the hard facts, whether they be scientific or analytical philosophy, they're 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 definitely secondary. They're secondary um, layers or reflections. And the the so the real tragedy happens when <clears throat> when we abstract from life, like that's what analytic philosophy does for me. Um, you abstract it into some sort of formula in order to better look at it, which is precisely the natural scientific view, right? You abstract from the living world. Uh, into sort of pet of object into something in order to look at it. But then we forget that we've that we're dealing with an abstraction. We don't reinsert it back into life. Um, and then the abstraction becomes imposed on life as this is what reality really is. So and if if you want, you know, a tragic recent model of that, it's, it's for instance, the um, the computer modeling that's been done to to drive lots of these um, pandemic predictions. These are computer models which are fed, you know, abstractly with abstract scenarios, which don't factor in a whole bunch of things, certainly don't factor in the social, uh, the importance of social interactions for human beings and so on. Um, And they've led to to enormous casualty predictions, which, which have always been wrong by a high order of magnitude. And we're still doing them. It just drives me absolutely nuts. It's this sort of abstraction from life. Without an, an eye back to reinsert into life, and you know, um, I think that's one of the one of the issues here. So, anyway, this is just my my constant plea for the humanities as being actually more fundamental, in some ways, or more important um, than the natural sciences. Why? Because the natural sciences only deal with material objects in space and time. Um, and an individuated object. And that's and for that. Is, uh, um, and so if you think about it, um, this, they can only make predictions, about individual entities mathematically configured already when you take uh, something organic, like when you take a, um, like something goes from an acorn to a tree or Mark Cornelli from Conelli from a from a baby to the grown man that kind of empirical science um, of this kind of Physicism right this uh, this um, mathematically individuating cannot possibly account for that organic growth being still the same being can't do it so we need an organic kind of way of putting things together and then the organic part can't really account for what we call a person right this mystery of the transcendence of the organic or of the material in the way that only humans have so you also need a personal sort of paradigm so I think the organic is it's bigger already than the material objective. And certainly the personal for our human interactions of of love, of justice, of of God, of religion, like all that drives our daily lives. Isn't that, I mean, I would say like that's like 80% and I'm being generous uh, of of what we know and what we act by. Mm -hmm. And here is natural science that has claimed for hundreds of years now that they are the true paradigm by which all of life should function. And they've given us this division where when you talk about religion, theology, the humanities, that's all you know marginal stuff you can do as a luxury, whereas here is what the real truth is that you need to engage in. Um, and and you know, and that kind of scientific attitude that still I think drives some of analytic philosophy also is kind of what I encounter in the business world. I it's every time when a, a, a businessman comes into an academic meeting. Let's say there's a business, a board member who waltzes into an academic faculty meeting and says, you know, when we're trying to hash something out, some ethical thinking or whatever. And then the businessman will say, Well, I come from the business world. And he thinks that's a recommendation. He thinks like, I come from a business world where the facts rule, you know, where hard practical stuff is the matter. And I will tell you head guys, you know, your theory guys, your people who read philosophy and all that stuff. That dichotomy runs so deep, and the arrogance with it. Um, you know, that's So I, a part of my life's work, I think, is you think this is long gone, right? And I think in theory, it is long gone. But I think in the real world, uh, it is still the dominant way of how people interact. Now, that's why I think, again, hermeneutics uh, is such an important way that needs to be shown to people that actually don't distrust religion, don't distrust poetry, don't distrust uh, these kind of reflections because they cover what's really essential about being human.
0: Ooh, amen. Uh, Thanks for that, Jens. I think uh, uh, that is why that beautiful description there is why I had suggested Dr. Wayne Costado's work to you because I think uh, he de- delineates this so beautifully too and speaks to the real life and um, he de- decries that kind of he calls it an idealism. And it reminds me too of Bob Dylan, how he talks about, um, I was using ideas as my maps, And then I'm younger than that now, and yes. he sort of flips it. So um, that's brilliant. And it brings to mind to just to, to give people maybe an artistic uh, representation of it. Uh, the movie uh, by Terence Malick, um, A Tree of Life. Yeah, You've seen that, how the yeah. father's a stern um, and. <laughs> overly rationalist figure and so on so okay. if anyone's interested to check it out so um i think you're you're doing a wonderful job there already of showing us how how important hermeneutics is how important hermeneutics can be in christians having conversations with other people because once we do recognize that we're all Immersed in these kind of hermeneutic communities, then a lot of the crude, uh, oh, religion, that's just for whatever, uh, kind of childish people goes out the window a little bit. And um, I think also I wanted to touch upon the element in your work that allows her- hermeneutics to play a great role in theological dialogue, even within our Christian communities, and how that impacts on Christian living. Then, would you like to speak to that uh, element, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, it does make sense. I mean, I I might just pick up what you said earlier, like the dialogue across uh, the spectrum, like Christian non-Christian, is very important to me, and it is along the lines of what it means to be human and what we've just talked about, right? If if human knowledge is fundamentally this way, in this hermeneutic sort of way, um, that's one aspect of what it means to be human. So I, you know, if I, if if people ask me what are your scholarly interests, I said, basically there are two planks, like, um, and both of them kind of fold into human identity, but it is uh, who we are, and what we how we know who we are, and how we know. So anthropology and epistemology, um, of course, epistemology, you know, uh, it's a word that came sort of up uh, after Kant, um, because the, the, the sort of hermeneutic consciousness that Gadamer talks about was sort of lost. And we now we have to start verifying our beliefs, because we've separated um, mind from being, as it were, right, with with Descartes, um, but still, it's useful of using it, epistemology, um, how we know, I mean, remember what I said earlier, we already know, it's, it's how do we reflect on it, um, yeah, and so I think if you, if you take this common interest in humanity, then I think um, what I'm doing helps you, and others have done this too, um, to bridge this gap Um, between Christians and non-Christians along the common interests of our humanity what it means to be human what human identity is and so this so circling back to your theological question for me I think I'm becoming comfortable with calling myself a Christian humanist Um, and then especially in my Protestant circles that's always like a bit of a you know shocker what you're that's like saying you're a christian atheist you can't do that you know it doesn't that doesn't compute but of course then i have all this work to do um, of showing them that i think christianity is the essential humanism um and i know you you agree but i'll just um because and this is the theological part of you know where I've, i've done a lot of reading in the church fathers uh which was really formative for me i i had the fortune of getting a uh, research grant for 10 years uh, that allowed me to do a lot of reading and less teaching, and one of the things I did is um, read a lot of the Church Fathers, and it was revolutionary for me in many ways, and I could talk about that as well, but um, the one concept that I, that I drew from it is this idea that um, Henri de Lubac, the French theologian, formulates in his, it's um, also influential book for me, uh, his book on, um, what was it called, um, Catholicism, it's the English title, um, the French I remember was some uh, of the social aspects of dogma, I, can't remember the, I think the, the English says the common destiny of man, which you can see how that is a translation, but it's not quite so the social aspects of dogma and, and de Lubac calls uh, the the patristic era um, that they that they promulgate a fundamental humanism, and that really intrigued me and so, so reading reading this so what is this humanism? Well, it's frankly simply that God became a human being. So, that human beings could become fully human by becoming like Christ. And of course, the patristic tradition that means to become deified, right? To, and um, the, the most famous statement of this is in Athanasius God became human, so we become gods. Enanthrope um, Santa, which also goes into the creeds, so it means that um, became enmanned, so we could become engoded, if you want, right? So, there, I mean, you have to wade through all of this uh, controversy. Um, well, do you mean we become gods? Uh, yeah, in, in a sense, yes, but of course not divine by nature, but divine by participation. And you can blame early Christians who didn't have penicillin, who didn't live that long, who were racked by disease, by death, um, and all kinds of things. That if they were promised immortality, they would say that's pretty damn godlike. I would say, you know. <laughs> Um, so you can't blame them, I think, for using that language, plus it is scriptural language, you know, uh, when Christ says, um, are you not sons of God, um, and they, they drew on that right as a promise that, that that's what put, that's what we would truly become. But the whole point is here that, um, as I can remember, it was, it was Gregory of Nyssa or Basil, who says God's fundamental work is the salvation and transformation of humanity. And that makes Christianity humanism. So the, the focus is not on, um, you know, uh, we're just God's water carriers. We're to here to serve God. Um, it is that God Himself became a human being to save humanity and creation through humanity, which was the original purpose. Um, and so invests Himself in humanity in order to glorify humanity to glorify Himself. You know, I mean, even Bonhoeffer picks this up as a Lutheran Protestant who says God is most glorified, which is this Irenaean phrase, right? When in the most glorified human being, which means, of course, when the human being has become most Christ-like, because Christ is the true image uh, of God in his fullness. But this true image was, you know, shown to us in the perfect humanity, in God's humanity. And so that's the goal of Christianity, uh, of Christian life, is to become ultimately transformed. Uh, both spirit and body into Christ likeness and the resurrection type of um body and and reality i think so when i sort of latch onto this I, a lot of stuff started making sense to me it made sense to me that the christians the early christians would say okay we've given you a long discourse like athanasius does this a long discourse on the incarnation why it is important but if you really want to know uh, what this all means and what christianity is just look at christians that they're not afraid to die they will face death they will live in the face of death because they have life within them they are you know so so on that incarnational christian humanist trajectory th- these statements that christ makes i'm the truth i'm life i'm the resurrection uh, and of course i'm the way to those things which is which is hugely interesting right i am these things but i'm also the path to these things because by participation in me you attain these things I think these are really statements that have we have to take literally uh, as statements about reality that like Christ is life, uh, life to the fullest. Um, so biologically uh, inspirited life that is sustained by God and will be transformed into the most full form in human, you know, in the human form in our transfiguration. But that's what we're sharing in as Christians. So it's not a notion of the head, it's not something that we conjure up, it's truly life. And so Christians, I don't know, maybe I'm just stating the banal here, but early Christians so lived out of that reality, that they didn't fear a pandemic, they didn't fear uh, taking care of the sick, they would have walked right into these old folks homes, yeah, for sure with a mask on or whatever they you know, whatever it would be, but the basic impulse would have been Certainly fear of a pandemic is not going to keep me from doing my personalist human duty of recognizing the dignity of another for whom Christ has died, that would have never occurred to them, uh, which is in fact there, you know I mean, there's history that uh, pan- that um, bears that out right. Um, that uh, when the plague hit Rome that the Christians would stay and take, take care of the sick, whereas um, all the educated pagans would flee the city. Um, and so. I often wonder, like if we had this sort of Christian humanist understanding of the reality of Christ in whom we share. Um, I've I've been puzzled, frankly, by the by a lot of the church's response, uh, including the Catholic Church, initially to the pandemic. Um, but I, you know, I don't want to go into that topic. I'm just saying that Christianity is the first humanism for these very real reasons, which which. Um, which hold together all of our Christian life and our Christian rituals and our liturgies and our our worship Um, and I think that's hugely important because from that if that is the true reality then other things that we talk about are also real realities and I know you wanted to go there anyway so um, you know I I talk in a book about uh, Eucharistic Christian humanism Because for me, the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, or the communion, or whatever tradition word you use, really is the heart of the, not the representation, but the re-presencing of that reality in worship, so that here you come, you take off the the blood and the the body of Christ in order to participate in him in a sort of tangible, transformative way, and that should really, that should really um, Deepen our connections to our fellow Christians, as you know, as Christ's body, but also to every other human being for whom Christ have died I had one. One pastor who put this beautifully without really knowing about Christian humanism, but he said celebrating the Eucharist. He said and our deepest desire should really be that the whole world is standing around the Eucharist with us every human being should be here. You know sharing in this because that is um that would be the ultimate um you know god being all in all um, so i think christianity is the first humanism so when i when i say you know i'm a christian humanist that's what i'm that's what i'm drawing on and i think therefore christians if they were um, christian humanists if they realize that that's what christ died for then we should align ourselves with everything In our society with every action that is humanizing with everything that stands for um, the kind of Christ like humanity dignity um, in and reflects that dignity in our social behavior and institutions. so I I think that for me is to go back to where we began, the kind of link uh, to let's say secular humanism. um, And humanists who want to who want to champion the dignity of the human but don't really know why they're doing it. Right, but I think we we need to be right in there with them, and I think we should be with anything, we should stand against anything that's dehumanizing. I think the Christian task for this world is to show the world what it should be really like and therefore to humanize it. I mean, this is not our home, I get that, like I I do not go with people who want to turn the world into the kingdom of God, their version of it, but I think we should reflect the humanity of Christ and therefore, you know, obviously be for uh, social justice and institutions but also uh, stand for humanizing things and against dehumanizing practices. I think that for me is where our cultural mandate
0: flows directly from the incarnation, from the gospel. Mm, amen. Brilliant. Yes. Thank you, Jess. And um, then another element, I think in line with what we are similar to what we mentioned before, I want to touch upon uh, law and the role of harmonetics in the practice of law, because I think, once we ignore the factor that we're moral human beings and we have these moral codes throughout history and that's how communities bind themselves together and everything is even the religio the latin root seems to suggest uh, then i want to ask and i think because we've ignored that a uh, reality that we have sort of law superimposed kind of more in a more abstract way to, as a kind of um, replacement for the, the moral life in some ways uh, maybe i'm overstating it but if that's if that makes sense so in line with that i want to ask just a bit about how then does the practice of hermeneutics impact on their understanding and our practice of law and what do you find most intriguing about that then
1: Um, yeah, that's a, that's that's a, that's a big, but an important question. I don't know what direction to take it. I mean, in the, in the hermeneutics book, I was just very, uh, I wanted just to see whether what Gadamer says in truth and method is actually true in, in legal discourse and in, in jurisprudence and whether people have reflected on that and, and whether it is reflected in our practice of living with, uh, the law, right? I mean, I mean, just, um, so what Gadamer uses law is one of those uh, instances of of the applicatory dimension of of hermeneutics, which means the law. So which means a text needs to be brought into our present context. So there's always this distance, right? Um, and the same is true for law. So law is made. Law is made in the past. Uh, and law is on the books, as it were. But it needs to be brought to life and applied to present circumstance, and that moment of application is a moment of interpretation. Uh, So there's no such thing as um, a simple one-to-one correspondence. Like there's the law, there's the violation. uh, Let's just use that. I mean, that might work uh, just because it's uh, because the process, the hermeneutic process, is so easy. Might work from some tort law or for some, you know, traffic violation. But even there. Um, you know, it is even our inherent impulse to want to plead some kind of circumstantial um, evidence uh, that, that shows, well, you know, I really meant to do this, but, uh, I, you know, the reason I didn't make it to the meter back was because I helped this old lady cross the street, like, doesn't that count, you know, something like that. Um, and then you go, the law is the law. But, I mean, obviously, that's, that can be true, because that would make for a really cruel, uh, society. I mean, obviously, law needs to be tempered by justice. Um, but all this shows you that there's always this element of interpretation in law. This is also true very much of um, how we interpret the Constitution, for instance. Um, and and so, I mean, I don't know, it's, it's just so our present moment is such, so much a reflection of that where a lot of that interpretive um, activity is neglected. and we have universal applications of some supposed law, um, like for instance, some restrictions you know with the corona measures that does not take into consideration individual uh, circumstances that need to be interpreted and taken into account, which is a direct link to me between the inhumanity of applying law in a machine like way, uh, which kind of denies the interpretation, but which is in fact itself an act of interpretation by simply saying there is no interpretation, um and uh it's cruel it's inhuman right i mean it's it's but we're in some ways we what this pandemic has shown to me is a bizarre legalism in people who probably is because they like to appear as being rule obedient which is for me in itself a problem um, maybe i'm too much of a you know i'm born 65 maybe it's too much of a generation maybe we've raised a generation that is now so rule obedient. Uh, which is really strange to me. But, you know, um, how, I, how can you um, justify this kind of thing where uh, I don't know about uh, where you're in Ireland, um, in Germany, where I followed very closely uh, where kids, um, you know, that have that are no threat in any way to, to through the pandemic have to wear masks in class, asthma kids um, can't get an exemption because the rule is you have to wear a mask um it's crazy like it's become so when the law becomes machine like it's inhuman and maybe um this is one of my pet peeves so i may as well just mention this very briefly i read increasingly in in the paper that um because of the huge volume of uh legal cases that courts are increasingly eyeing um ai as a potential help in adjudicating cases so ai will sift through uh, cases and along certain you know um codifications or lines programs uh to sift out just to do sort of the the mechanical random things until it finally comes for a judge but Im- imagine and of course what they mean is it's going to unburden the system it's going to unburden the judges but you're handing over if it is true that there's in every legal uh, application an, an act of interpretation that we need to you meet we I so just said we need to have that done by humans in order to take uh, the human dimension into account in each particular instant, then this is a disastrous way of going forward if you hand over um, any kind of legal pre sorting to algorithmic processes. Um, because you, you're not controlling, there's no human interaction, no human act of interpretation anymore uh, in these things. And that will just turn the turn up the cruelty knob, I think, uh, to a a very high degree. I just think it's a completely wrong way of going. um, Because it disregards this human interpretive dimension, the the, the failure. Here's another great example is how we do this at every moment. This has nothing to do with law intrinsically. But uh, another report I just loved is in these self driving cars, uh, these Google cars, um, they had a problem, because they had a Google car, at a four-way stop and they figured out what the problem was so the the car just went to the four-way stop and budged no more stayed there like for hours and hours and hours they couldn't figure out why well it's because us human beings who constantly interpret adjudicate and adjust you know everybody kind of does a rolling stop but the software says well you have to come to a full stop before i know how to proceed (laughs) so so this car just couldn't um, even people that that think they are stopping, you know, they're still um, they're still judging like the other car when did it, it come and so on and the, the software just can't do it. It just doesn't have that intuitive interpretive sense. And the same with the legal situation, right? So um, I think that's really problematic. Um, so what I tried to do in the book is, on the one hand, I sh- to, So I didn't talk about technology there so much that's newer, but I tried to um, show that interpretation goes all the way down in law. Um, that whatever, um, whenever uh, a historian of law, even or is certainly a lawyer, that they are hermeneutically engaged, and they should be aware of that, um, because there is no such thing as here's the law, here's the situation, and you just match them. That a machine could do, but since that's not the case, a machine cannot possibly uh, be an adequate replacement for a human
0: being in that process. Mm, brilliant, thank you, Jens. So I, I've got through the questions for your first book. <laughs> and I know we implicitly at least we referred there to um incarnational humanism a few times. So I'm just thinking, um, would you be happy to do a part two, as it were, Jens? Or sure. um, because I want people to to actually watch it. it's one of my favorite conversations so far. So I, I don't know if they would watch if we if we go, were to go through the other two books. I don't that would take so, so long. I don't know. I don't think people would watch it. Whereas I think if we break it into two videos, say um, do the first one covering what we've spoke about, and then go more in, in the second conversation into incarnation Encarn- and humanism and your work on Bonhoeffer uh, specifically. Would that make yeah, sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love it. Would be great. Yeah, because I think it's the most important. I'm really happy <laughs> with this conversation. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, okay, great. Yeah, that's an honour. Thanks, Mark. I'd be happy to do that. Yeah.
0: Amazing. If you may
1: have um, heard through the conversation that we've had, um, I'm very interested in human identity. And um, after writing these books, while I was reading the, writing the Bonhoeffer book, um, he had some engagement with the idea of what it means to be a person. And so that's my that's my next um book is a theological anthropology um on the mystery of personhood so that's what i that's what i want to do and that's what i'm researching and so i'm drawing on a lot of personalist philosophers and you might appreciate this mark um i hit this place uh, where Bonifa writes in his ethics on um, natural law and uh, bodily rights and so on and so forth and it occurred to me that that must be a greater discussion. Can't just be for Although he is the, we'll talk about this in the next video. He's the one Protestant who, who actually sort of recovers natural law and draws explicitly on Catholic thought. Um, but there were others too, and so he got me actually onto these Catholic thinkers uh, like um, personalist philosophers uh, Mounier and Niedenchau and um, F and others. Um, and this was this time, 1930s, uh, 40s. And after where these person, personalism, what it means to be a person, uh, was in many ways sparked, the reflection sparked as a counter to the dehumanizing effects of uh, you know, the totalitarianisms that were rising after the First World War. And it was a, um, uh, a Catholic Pope, a Pious, can't remember the number, <laughs> um, who started this conversation in many ways. That led to um, all these reflections of what it means to be a person, these reflections on personhood and dignity, then um, uh, entered into the U, uh, human rights declarations that we know, right? 1948 UN Declaration. That's all this kind of work that flows into that. So that was hugely interesting to me. So I wanna, I wanna use that as a starting point um, and have kind of a Christian personalist um, book. Um, that starts with the fathers, Um, and I'm not a Zizulas. like I don't think, I I love what Zizulas does uh, on the person, I'm not sure it's, you can just read all of that back into the church fathers like that, Mm -hmm. but there certainly are things going on about human identity that want to, want to draw on and then move uh, into the modern time and then move into these um, debates, uh, bioethical, problems that are caused by our forgetting what a person is that's mm. uh, and technology is a great uh, a lot to do with that but we can talk about that also more next time
0: yeah thank god and um i want to recommend people to go to your web pages then so they can go to com or they can go to www.janezimmerman.ca and they can check out your more of your work this wonderful Pieces I don't know where I, where I uh, read, but you have a fantastic piece on transhuman transhumanism specifically. Um, was that on one of those sites? Yeah, that's was- on the webpage.
1: You mentioned uh, the Human Flourishing, which was um, which got me started on this uh, latest trajectory. It was a three-year research project uh, funded from the Issachar Fund um, on technology. Uh, so it's called Human Flourishing in a Technological World. And I've just submitted the the final manuscript to Oxford, so that'll come out in a year uh, of the essay. So that's drawn to a close, which was a fantastic uh, project, interdisciplinary. Where and people can so. I just want to make this sure people can read on the project and the contributions, talks, podcasts, um, and publications on that webpage. They can access. They can access
0: that. Yeah. Mm, glory to God. Thank you so much, Jens and God bless you. Yeah, and you too. Happy travels.
1: Nobody can
0: stop me, ooh, I'm going there.